This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I am joined by Jordan Tai, a Coast Guard veteran and political operative for the California Republican Party, who became enmeshed in a Twitter scandal during the 2020 election. He's here to tell his story about how he was wrongfully accused and how this accusation destroyed his life. Also, I'll explore the role Twitter played in Jordan's story and in others. And now, the Nexus. Jordan Tai is a Coast Guard veteran and was a regional field director on Michelle Steele for Congress's campaign, which is California's 48th district. Tai has been politically active for much of his life and held leadership positions while attending Arizona State and the University of Southern California. But last fall, he became embroiled in a nationwide controversy. Jordan posed with a ballot box on social media, seemingly urging voters to cast their ballot for Michelle Steele at a box like the one he was next to in the photo. Suddenly, there was a national outcry that somehow Jordan was ballot harvesting and potentially doctoring votes or inventing ballots. This caused massive damage to his reputation. But Jordan joins me now to set the record straight. Jordan Tai, welcome to the Nexus. Thank you, uh, Art. It's great to be here. Okay. It's been a good three months since this imbroglio happened, and I wanted you to take me through what happened. You were working for Michelle Steele, and you appeared with a ballot box, and all hell broke loose. Tell me, how did this come about? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a, uh, like you said, a regional field director with the California Republican Party assigned to uh, the Michelle Steele for Congress campaign. Um, You know, going back to 2018, you know, this is when I was still active in the Coast Guard, so I was not actually participating in in politics at the time. But in 2018, uh, Democrats used ballot harvesting, which had recently been legalized in California, and cleaned the clock of Republicans. I mean, you saw those 2018 midterms, um, particularly in California, they flipped seven seats, but many of those seats had never even been flipped uh, blue before. Um, and a lot of that credit goes to ballot harvesting. So the GOP fought ballot harvesting, you know, in the state legislature and they lost. They, they fought ballot harvesting in the courts and they lost. And then in 2018, they didn't do it. They were opposed to it and they lost seats. So after all that losing, you know, as, as much as they were opposed to it, and I myself am opposed to it as well, if you want to compete politically, you have to do it. If it's the law of the land, it has to be done. So the GOP came up with a strategy on how they were going to do ballot harvesting. Now, again, this was all, I, I was a pretty low-level staffer um, throughout w- with the uh, California Republican Party. So I was just someone on the ground, you know, kind of following orders, doing as I was told, let, making sure things were, were getting out there. Um, this was all kind of a pre-planned thing, but they, 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 their plan for ballot harvesting were to have these receptacles, these boxes in GOP offices for voters to go and drop their ballot off safely and securely. Um, there was some strategy behind it, too, particularly for this election. You know, President Trump had told Republican voters not to vote by mail, to vote in person, um, not to trust, you know, you know, sending it in, saying there could be fraud. Um, but in Orange County in particular, there were not many as many in-person voting centers because of COVID, they were, they were limited. Um, so the GOP basically saw, you know, creating a service, which was all under legal ballot harvesting guidelines to have these ballot receptacle boxes 
inside um, GOP offices so that people can, who didn't want to have to wait in line could drop their ballots off with the Republican operative safely and securely to have it delivered. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, to make, just to make this even explicitly clear, ballot harvesting, what, what is, where does that term come from? Why do they even use that phrase? You know, I, I actually don't know where the term originates from, but it's essentially the practice of handing your ballot to uh, somebody else, um, having that person sign off on it, and going and turning it in, uh, which is where a lot of the controversy came about, right? Because a lot of people don't understand ballot harvesting or how it works. And I think when this became a controversy, our political opposition used that, uh, that the lack of knowledge that a lot of people have in regards to ballot harvesting to saying, hey, these people are just taking votes. How, how can they do that? How can we allow this to happen? But it was like, you created this law. The Democrats created this law. They put it into place, even though we opposed it. And, and you know, they called it voter expansion. But when we as a, the Republican Party did it, they considered it to be voter suppression. And they said, well, how can, how, you know, they're going to break the law. And, and it, none of it was breaking the law. Now, a lot of the controversy happened over, you know, because it was a box and because there was a signage on it that said official ballot box. Um, Democrats just kind of took that and they rolled with it, saying that, oh, they're putting these boxes on street corners. They're they're setting them up illegally. And I mean, none of that could have been further from the truth. I mean, these boxes were always staffed. Um, there was a staffer with each box. Um, so each box belonged to an individual staffer. So you knew who you were, uh, who you were giving that ballot to. So there was actually a proper chain of custody. Um, after you, you, you returned it, you gave your ballot. They, uh, we would give out these little slips, um, to track your ballot to the California Secretary of State website. So the, the safeguards were all in place. And a lot of the lies that the, the left and the Democrats were, were telling in regards to this just were unfounded. They didn't have the knowledge. And it was, it was judge, jury, and executioner. Hmm. But let me think, if, you, if I were a California Democratic voter, could I still bring my ballot for your opponent to the box that you're talking about? And would it be accepted? Yeah, of course. It has to. By law, that's what has to be done. You know, we can't open it up and look who you voted for. Um, when you give us a ballot, it had to be returned in. And you got that slip, regardless of who you were. Hmm. So it's, it's theoretical. So anyone could track their ballot. Yeah. So you may have gotten at that box in question. You may have gotten Democratic votes for all you know. Yeah, it's entirely possible. So... Why do they, why did the controversy erupt? Why did they think you were doing something illegal? And what were some of the things they said that you were doing? Oh, I mean, the accusations, it was just all sorts of accusations. I think the controversy initially erupted, again, because it was a receptacle and because it said official ballot box. Now, and that, and that was frustrating for me because, again, as a low-level staffer, I had nothing to do with, with creating these, buying these boxes, making that signage, um, any of it. And I was the one being accused of saying, oh, I'm, I'm setting up all these boxes and sticking a little official sticker on there. Now, I don't know why they use that official terminology. Um, I think that was certainly a mistake. You know, going through my head when it when you know we had first received the box at the office that I worked in, 
I guess my thought process was it was a box for official ballots, not an official, you know, county or government ballot box. Um, but it was, and I also saw it as not my place to question, you know, ballot harvesting is still kind of a new and confusing thing in California. And I'm not a lawyer. You know, it's the, this process had been vetted by California Republican Party lawyers um, from top to bottom. So I just I, I pretty much trusted the system on how that would go. I, I don't know how that came about, um, but I think there was just somewhere at a higher level than mine. There wasn't the proper protocol being followed and the proper people probably weren't checking and to see how that eventually got there. Um, I think it's very unfortunate that it did get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, it was something that, you know, it could have been avoided. And I wish it was avoided. Okay. So that sets the stage. Let's go into that unfortunate period where you posted, you took a photo next to the box. You looked very up and enthusiastic and exhorting people to um, cast their ballot. Then tell me what happened when the photo you posted on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, what happened then? So ironically enough, uh, the first day I posted it, there was really nothing, you know, I, and, and it was a public post. It was out there. It was a, uh, I used the hashtag CA48, which is for California's 48th congressional district. So, you know, some sort of opposition would have had to seen that well before um, and not made a big deal of it because most political operatives probably know ballot harvesting. They probably know it's, it's, it's legal and everything. Um, what it, and, and when I posted, so when I posted that picture, it was just another get out the vote post. You know, part of my job as a regional field director is to get out there and, and, and promote the candidates we're working for, get out there, try to encourage our supporters and people to vote and share the different ways to uh, on how to vote. So promoting the GOP ballot harvesting operations w- was part of that. I even got approval from my supervisors beforehand. I was like, hey, look, I'm going to take a picture with this. You know, I know you guys want us to promote it. Is this okay? And they're like, yeah, of course. Like, you know, it's, it's ballot harvesting. It's something we need to do now. So, uh, of course. Um, so I, I went and I posted it. So for days, nothing happened. Then, uh, I guess in Santa Clarita, there was a ballot box at a church. I don't know as much about that because I didn't work in that region. That was up in the 25th Congressional District of California. But there was a ballot box in a church that people were taking pictures of. Um, it seemed to be outside the church. It didn't look like it was staffed. I don't know the context of the picture or, or, or if somebody had stepped away from it or what they were doing in the operation up there. But that kind of became the first controversy. Uh, the church itself was advertising this ballot box as well, saying, hey, you know, when you come by service, you can drop your ballot off with us. And it became like a controversy. The local news stations picked it up. Um, national news stations started to pick it up. And the story was starting to grow. Uh, somewhere along the line, a Democrat, uh, some Democrat operatives. And I think the guy, I forget, he works for some political organization. He's married to uh, the leader of Planned Parenthood in California. He particularly got mine and shared it. And he was like, what's the deal with this? And that's where the traction started to grow. And I think my tweet, my story became even bigger because I wasn't some church. I was actually a GOP official doing this. You know, there's more, there's going to be more arrows at you and more targets at you when you're actually a GOP official. Right. So it kind of really just started to get out of control. Um, I remember going to my supervisors. I was like, hey, this is getting nuts. Like I'm getting tons of messages. I'm getting tons of tweets. Like people are accusing it, falsely accusing it of all sorts of stuff. And I was told to keep your head down. It's not a big deal. Like, you know, just, just, they're just trying to intimidate you. What we're doing is legal. You don't have to worry. Um, 
so then I started getting calls from like the local media and I was like, Oh my gosh, like I'm getting calls from the media. They're like, don't respond to media. That's not your job. Just ignore it. Just, just keep your head up that, you know, nothing, nothing's going to happen. Like you're fine. They're just trying to scare you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I completely got off Twitter at that point. Like, I mean, it was just such a dumpster fire. Um, and when I got home, there were two investigators waiting for me. Hmm. You know, and I, I, yeah, I go inside and, you know, they start asking me questions and everything. And that's when I was like, this is absolutely out of control. And I, then I think the party started to realize it got out of control later that night. You know, like, you know, the Orange County Register did a story on me. You know, you had the DA in Orange County talking about how he's not going to let anyone tamper with the votes. And, you know, it's a felony of up to four years to tamper with the votes. And of course, you know, they, they, totally in a defamatory matter had my picture in the background as he's saying these things. Um, and, and from there I was like, man, I, <laughs> this is, this is it. You know, the next day I was all over, you know, CNN, MSNBC, you know, the New York post did an article, New York times, an article, Washington post did an article, all of it initially surrounding me. Um, and it was very, very damaging for me and my reputation in particular, because this was obviously, you know, to, Behind the scenes, this was a GOP operation. This was a plan, you know, put forward by higher up party operatives um, that had been in the, the planning, that had been um, vetted, all this stuff. But right now, the world is seeing this me, this one guy, as this somehow mastermind, you know, for this election fraud voting scheme. And th- and it's still like that damage is still there because when you Google right. my name to those initial stories, that's what comes up. It's like fraud, felony, like. GOP uh, operative uh, promotes illegal, fraudulent ballot boxes. What are they doing? Um, and it wasn't until the next day the actual state party took credit for or, or took ownership of the boxes, admitting it was them who placed it. So within that like 24-hour period, I mean, a lot of that initial heat was on me and a lot of that initial damage was on me. Um, and even after the fact, even after the GOP admitted to it, I was the face of it. I was the poster boy of it. Despite being a low-level staffer, I mean, the, the general public regional field director, you don't know what that means. I was seen as the guy who was, you know, it wasn't even a question. Nobody even asked like, well, hey, what's going on here? It was just like, they are cheating. They are committing fraud. They are stealing people's votes. You can't do this. I was on Jimmy Kimmel. You know, I was on the Young Turks. The Young Turks did like a whole episode or not the Young Turks, but one of their like lower shows or one of their other affiliate shows did a whole episode where they're just slandering and bashing me. And this guy, Jesse Dolamore, who's a local uh, political commentator, he did a whole episode. You know, talking about how dumb I was and how ruthless and evil I was. And and it's, it's almost weird because it's like, I'm not a celebrity. I'm not a public figure. And I just took a simple picture, you know, promoting the vote. And these leftists just went a mile, you know, went miles with it and, and, and accused me of all these f- f- fake things. Yeah, let's let's break that down a bit. So obviously, so much of this stuff happened within a 24 to 48 hour period. And... During any of it, you said investigators came to your residence and and there was um, some concern there. During any of that time, did you actually think, well, maybe I know the my bosses are saying this is legal, but is it possible that maybe something is going to come out illegal or they might charge me with something? Yeah, I mean, definitely like this. The problem, too, is a highly publicized, highly political case like this, 
whether it's right or wrong, it's going to have more coming down on you. You know, like there's going to be more attention to it, more people demanding something be done. So yeah, those first, you know, 24 hours or so I was, especially when the GOP was not admitting that they owned it, I, I was a little nervous. Um, I, I, I didn't know. I, I figured, you know, I, I trusted the process and I was like, maybe along the way, somebody at that higher level didn't do their due diligence or didn't, you know, realize that, that, that this was le- that or they made some kind of mistake that ended up having it be something that's illegal. And it was like, holy cow. But deep down, like, I, I, I still trusted the process enough because, like I said, I'm not a lawyer, you know, uh, and, and I assumed that the state party had a good team of lawyers behind them. I still deep, deep down uh, thought that this still was legal. And I understand how politics works. And people want to put out false accusations there to win cheap political points. So I, I still, I, I think... I think deep down, I knew that that nothing was going to happen and nothing did happen. I mean, of course, you know, yeah, the the left wing media didn't follow it as much. The GOP won pretty much every legal battle they faced with this. But before you got to that point, it didn't just seem like a local matter in a way, because if I recall, um, two people who are now national political figures, Alex Padilla and Javier Becerra. One is the the U.S. Senator from California, along with Dianne Feinstein. Another is one of Biden's cabinet nominees for health and human services. They actually took an interest in your case or your situation. Tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, as, as the attorney general, and as the Secretary of State, as what was their both respective offices at the at the time, um, it was very much a part of it within their realm. And as both you know registered elected Democrats, they saw a, a way to make this political. Um, you know, President Trump was out there saying, you know, oh, there's so much fraud in this election, and Democrats are commit commit fraud. So I think that they saw this as an opportunity to win cheap political points um, to be like. Hey, we're not committing fraud. It's actually the Republicans committing fraud here in our state. Look what they're doing. You know, it could help out these local swing races, you know. Um, and, and it was very frustrating because, you know, here I am. I mean, I've taken you from point A to point B, just this low level staffer, you know, taking a picture or taking a picture of the box, trying to get out the vote, you know, promote democracy. And Alex Padilla used my image, used an article that was about it with my image on it. And he had this big long tweet, you know, about how. You know, people are illegally setting up ballots. And, and if, you, if you're going to handle hand your ballot to someone, make sure it's absolutely someone you can trust and no one else insinuating, you know, with my image there insinuating, I'm this devious guy with his thumbs up, you know, trying to steal people's ballots or whatever. I mean, it was just a, a blatant, you know, such a dishonest representation. He went out there as well. And he was bragging to the media just without even asking the GOP questions. He didn't, he didn't even go into it. It was just instant accusation saying what they're doing is illegal. And him, along with other Democrats, but him in particular, he was bragging about how they were going to work with local authorities and prosecute everyone involved to the fullest extent. And of course, you know, my name's the only one out here at this point. So, so I'm getting tons of people, you know, coming in my inbox, you know, telling me all sorts of horrible things. Um, but he, he was going saying how he's going to prosecute everyone involved to the fullest extent. And, because this was a CAGOP operation and, and most people within the organization were involved in these ballot harvesting operations of some, some matter, he would have been essentially throwing every single or the vast majority of the California Republican Party organization in, in prison. Mm-hmm. Now, 
that's that's disturbing because you know throwing your political because he's a registered Democrat throwing your political opposition in prison is what dictators do in third world countries hmm. and here he is here he is threatening this or talking about this in, in California and now he's been rewarded for it you know that unethical dishonest behavior you know got him appointed to the U.S. Senate and it, it's really that shows me the system is somewhat broken it was really disheartening for me to see him get selected after what he did to me and and the CAGOP in general. And what about Becerra? What was his particular role in all? Oh, he, I mean, he, he was kind of one and the same as well. Like he was the attorney general. He said how, talked about how he was going to investigate it. How he, how, how he also deemed that this was illegal. Um, he actually, you know, when he lost the initial legal battle, he took it a step further. He wanted to subpoena the CAGOP. Um, he, he put out a subpoena there to make us hand over any information that was collected on these voters. Now, there's no rule in the law um the a- ab 1921 i believe was, was was the law that initially passed ballot harvesting that you have to collect information on the people who you know put ballots in your ballot box there's no rule on it um and he was demanding that we hand over the ballot boxes that we hand over the information um you know he he took it to uh, i think he had an emergency subpoena when it actually went to the court um, a judge denied him and he called it partisan political intimidation because, you know, our opponent, Harley Ruda, had his own ballot harvesting program. It was called the Neighborhood Ballot Hub, where somebody would go to, you know, a, ha- a local house of a volunteer and drop their ballot off in a, in a wicker box or a basket or however the person was collecting it. And that person would bring the, you know, the ballot to the, uh, the uh, register of voters. So a judge asked, he's like, what's the difference between this? He made a very good point, you know, because at the GOP, you're essentially going to a GOP office, putting it in that ballot receptacle, giving it to a GOP operative to take. On the Harley Ruta side, you were going to a, a neighborhood house and giving it to a volunteer so they could bring it. And the judge brought up the point of saying, why aren't you looking into Harley Ruta's program? This is partisan political intimidation. You're using your position of power to attack your political opposition. It's essentially what he was doing. Mm, mm. Amazing. And now he, he's, he's being rewarded for it. You know, he's, he's got that, he got that nomination to HHS secretary in the Biden administration, which is also very disheartening to me. It just shows me that in the Democratic Party in California in particular, the more ruthless, dishonest and unethical you are, the farther you get ahead. And it's just a sad thing. Right. Right. Understood. Um, so. Tell me more about what happened on Twitter and social media, but especially Twitter. You were under attack and the masses, not only in California, but nationwide, probably worldwide, came after you. What was some of the reaction from those people and how did it make you feel? Oh, man. I mean, in the beginning, it was like a little nerve wracking. because You know, nobody likes getting attacked, especially when you're more of a behind the scenes figure. And now you're being catapulted into being a public figure. Um, but yeah, initially, it was just like, oh, they're just trying to scare me. But when it started like getting huge tracks, and when I got that first call from the media, that's when I was like, holy cow. Um, you know, I, I got celebrities are retweeting it. The anti-Trump political action committee Midas touch like was out there saying, Oh, Jordan, this is illegal. This, this guy should get used to life as a felon and he's going to get a visit from the FBI. I mean, these are like blue check marks saying things like this. Um, and it's just out there. Everybody talking about felony illegal. 
And, and it got even more nasty. You know, I was getting all, like you said, all over the world, I was getting private messages and everything all over the world. And, and politicians were using me as a point of attack. And, and I'll use the example of, of, of Harley Ruto, our opponent in the race. You know, the, the guy is a really piece of work. I'll, I'll tell you that. But uh, this is a guy who got into, who claims he got into politics because he wanted to bring back common decency. He claims he, you know, wanted to, to bring honesty. He always used the hashtag truth over lies. And, you know, he also said that he, he had several posts talking about how he has a record of caring for veterans and he's the guy who's going to stand up for our veteran community. Well, I'll tell you, Art, you know, I wasn't a year back from my third and final deployment in active duty military service when he used my image. He used my name with the words craven and criminal, insinuating mm-hmm. that I was committing a felony or committing a, a fraudulent election crime. And his supporters were demanding that I go to prison and gleefully talking about how I would get raped when I was in prison Hmm. without any condemnation from him or his team. That's your idea of common decency. That's, that's how you treat veterans who are are transitioning back into civilian life in your community. And even after all the facts came out, even after it was clearly a CAGOP operation, even after the CAGOP won every legal battle, they doubled down his district director, Laura Oatman, who's not some random Twitter troll, uh, as late as January 6th, used my image insinuating in my name. She had a whole little like thing circled around my name with the original OC register article saying I committed a felony or talking about how there was com- a possible felony being committed. Even after all the facts came out and that wasn't the case, she was, in, she was insinuating that I need to be investigated, that I somehow committed a, a election fraud, despite it being a CGOP operation and being illegal. So it was just such a, a doubling down on it. Hmm. Incredible. And to put a bow on this part of the story, when all was said and done, there were no charges. There was really no investigation. You weren't doing anything illegal, but yet the heat and the noise that came from Twitter and the Orange County Register and all of these things, it's really even in the weeks after when your name was cleared, so to speak, nobody really reported that, right? No. And, and why would they? You know, it didn't, it wouldn't, in my view, fit, first of all, it's not sensationalism and it didn't fit, you know, the agenda that the story they wanted to present that the CAGOP was committing election fraud. You know, the more legal battles the GOP won, the less people covered it. I mean, CNN, MSNBC, when that first story broke, it was everywhere. They played it. And then when the GOP admitted to it, they played it again saying, oh, you know, they, 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 they have, it's a whole, you know, it's a party-wide crime and stuff. And when they kept winning the legal battles, uh, less and less covered it. It was like local media. And then the biggest win was when they tried, when, you know, Becerra tried to uh, subpoena the CAGOP and uh, he lost and was, you know, the judge accused him of partisan political intimidation. The only major news that covered, I think, was was L.A. Times. The rest were like mostly local stations, things like that. And when there was the final closure to this whole saga was two weeks after the actual election, uh, Javier Becerra quietly you know, admitted that it was a safe and secure election and there was no fraud being committed. Um, and he closed the investigation. He closed the he ended his lawsuit against the CAGOP you know, on a Friday afternoon. Um, and hardly anyone covered that. I mean, there were some local stations, but that's it. Hardly anyone covered it. Hmm. It's like, in the meantime, your reputation was destroyed. And 
it sounds like you're still reeling from this, it, that you haven't been able to find a job since then, not even with the steel campaign or the steel transition into Congress. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, it is accurate. You know, uh, part of the big problem is when this initially broke, I, I would like, I, like I said, I was the face of this thing. So my reputation had been damaged. I was, I was kind of damaged goods, if you will. Um, you know, especially the CAGOP taking a day to, to admit to having it. When you Google my name, like I said, it's just all felony criminal. So any, any office I apply for, any job I apply for, that's what was coming up. Um, and I was such a figure of, of, uh, you know, div- I don't know the word for it, but I was, I was a controversial figure, essentially, even though I was vindicated, you know, across the board and, and, and everyone knew that it's like I was damaged goods. Um, and I haven't been able to get a job. I've applied a lot of places and, and, and it's very frustrating because I'll say this, like, you know, the, the people who thought of these ballot boxes, the people who, you know, whoever had the official sign, uh, whoever didn't approve the official sign, I should say, I'm not sure how that came about, but all these different things. Um, they're still employed, getting promotions, doing fine. Uh, I, I'm the one who's been damaged for basically doing my job and you know, cr- you know, following protocol the whole way, and it was all out of my control. And it's, it, it is disappointing. And you're a foot soldier in a way, and it's almost like to use military illusions, the top brass used you almost like as a bullet catcher, as we used to say. Um, and unfortunately, you were on the front lines and the first to go in this. In this kind of battle that that happens, would that be accurate? You think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's hard to say, but yeah, I, I'd say that's somewhat of an accurate statement. Um, yeah, my reputation is pretty damaged from this, and, and even like we're getting jobs outside of the, the the political field. Most of the stories that that you Google my name with are, are those those bad uh, bad initial stories. Now, I did go public. You know, the OC Register did a really good piece. I think a really accurate piece on on everything that went down. Um, and I th- I'm hoping that'll start a, a, a you know other people will start to cover it and there will be a little bit of a balance. It's going to be hard to balance those national stories everywhere, but um, there'll be a little bit of balance, a little bit of closure. People can see to say, Hey, this guy didn't do anything wrong. And let's go back in time a little bit, because as I mentioned at the top that you were politically active in college and graduate school and, and so forth. Where did your interest in politics come from and what, are your ultimate dreams if you ever return to the political realm? I, you know, I'm not sure. I think my initial interest in politics, I remember it was high school. I was, uh, you know, it was a pretty historic election. It was 2008, um, Hillary Clinton versus Barack Obama, you know, the first woman president, the first black president. It was everywhere, all over the news. And I was starting to be mature enough to actually pay attention. You know, I wasn't elementary, middle school or anything like that anymore. I was being mature enough to kind of get it a little more and understand politics and the importance of it a little more. So I was curious. I started watching debates, um, the Democrat debates, the Republican debates. And when I would watch the Republican debates, I always found myself agreeing with the positions more. Um, again, I'm, I'm more politically knowledgeable now. And I think about these things deeper, but sort of those basic issues and the basic understanding of the various issues. I found myself agreeing with the Republican side more. Um, so I learned more about it, kind of got hooked that next election cycle. I actually got a, uh, 
part-time position with the Chuck DeVore for U.S. Senate campaign in California. I helped, helped him fundraise a little bit when I was a senior in high school. When I interned in his office, he was my local state assemblyman. Uh, after that, I went to you know Arizona State University, where I got my uh, bachelor's degree in political science, and, and there, you know, I dove into it deeper. I, you know, helped out on Congressman David Schweikert's campaign before he got elected. He took me out to be an intern with him in Washington D.C. You know, from there, I, I got a position running the uh, Students for Romney campaign. So I ran his student uh, coalition throughout the state of Arizona, which was one of the coolest jobs I ever had. Really, really enjoyed working on that. Uh, and then I even became involved in student government. I, I got uh, uh, selected to be the student body vice president um, and, and really got, a, got to take on some good political roles, um, being, actually being the politician in, in that regards. And I ended up interning for uh, Senator McCain as well, the, the late Senator McCain in his district office there, which was a really awesome experience. And, and I'll say that experience, you know, uh, inspired me to eventually serve in the military myself, working working in an office like his. After I, I went on to uh, graduate school at USC because I, I grew up in Southern California, I want to be more connected there. You know, from there I, I got connected with uh, my local congressman Dana Rohrbacher, who was the congressman there at the time. Um, interned on his campaign, got to know him and his family. R- really great people. I uh, became student. You know, I became a vice president of the College Republicans at USC to really kind of connect the local com- political community in Southern California, and I got elected to uh, the graduate student senate um to kind of continue the political side of things being the politician side of things as well and and that was uh, that was that was unique because uh you got to imagine a school in southern california in graduate school nevertheless nonetheless uh is pretty liberal so i think i was like one of three conservative people in the graduate student senate which was like 50 people so uh, that was definitely pretty unique um yeah and then from there you know i i obviously joined the military and and went on to get that job with the california republican party and michelle Steele campaign do you want to go back to politics if you had the choice? I don't know. I mean, I'm still kind of reeling from this whole thing. And th- there's a lot of questions to be had. I mean, was this thing so damaging that no, you know, nobody's going to want to touch me again? Am I a controversial figure or, you know, by me going public, am, am I going to be redeemed somehow? And, and even if I am like, it, you know, what, what's going to happen next, you know, cause what happened to me was pretty rare, pretty, you know, yeah, there's scandals and crazy things happen in politics, but to be following protocol the whole time to be a behind the scenes figure and to be catapulted from something as innocent as a, as a tweet of trying to get out the vote um, to going to national international news is, is pretty insane. Like, it, like sure. I said, it's when you see those, when you, pe- when you see these like people slandering you and defaming you on Twitter or TV shows or whatever, it's almost weird because it's like, they're talking about me. Like what? You know, it's not <laughs> even like, it's weird. It's really weird. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I want to really think long and hard about that um, to see if it's something I want to continue with. Cause on one hand, I really enjoy it. Before all this went down, I, I was loving the job I had. I, I grew up in the 48th congressional district. So to be able to go home, you know, and, and fight, you know, for the community that helped shape my values was, was such a rewarding, awesome experience. And, and working with the volunteers and, and the people, the local people who are, who are my people, people I grew up, pe- the kind of people I grew up with, you know, who knew the area that I grew up with, um, in the same, same community was such a rewarding, awesome experience. Um, and the intensity of it, you know, cause this, this was one of the closest congressional races in the country. Uh, 
it's not like an easy win. So it was a very intense process and it was a lot of fun. Um, and, and I enjoy public policy as well. But it's also a very nasty business. And I saw the really ugly, ugly side of it. And, you know, even when things go south, you know, you don't, the people who should be sticking up for you aren't sticking up for you. You, you can see yourself kind of getting scapegoated, thrown under the bus. And it's a really, uh, that's a tough thing. And, and in most industries, it's not like that. And especially with today's toxic cancel culture, mostly coming from uh, the left, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a unique industry where it's you're just out there doing your job and people are literally trying to destroy your lives stop you from having a livelihood stop you from having a social life you know if i was working in you know sales or insurance or something like that probably really doesn't exist in those industries you know so it really is an ugly tough world sure sure no that's there's no question about that as we saw in the 2020 election that continued on into 2021 um with several races and and so forth but has michelle Steele reached out to you uh after the controversy or after the election either one yeah we did talk a little bit after the election um you know I, I was very much a part of the team so once we won there was you know a big celebration on election night um we went and uh had a big celebration dinner with everyone involved and there was talking and you know congratulations and all this stuff um so so we did get to talk a little bit after the election but uh since the time has gone on i mean she's been very busy you know she's a congresswoman now <laughs> uh you know so not not quite as much Hmm. And what would you what would you say if you had a way to make a statement to Senator Padilla and Secretary Designate Becerra? What would you say to them? Ah, oh, man. You know, I, I don't know. I would say, like, I, I don't know. I mean, quite frankly, they they should be ashamed of themselves. You know, they, they owe me an apology. You know, the, these are also guys and I, and I don't, you know, just like playing up the veteran card and everything, but these are also guys who in their past have talked about how much they care about veterans and how much they care about truth, sort of like Harley Ruda, but they too, not to the extent that he did, but they too used my image and used me and essentially slandered and defamed me, um, falsely accused me, uh, and made it very public. And they really, so they could win some cheap political points. They destroyed my life. They destroyed my livelihood and, and, and tarnished my reputation over a lie. It's like, I'm, I'm not the one running for, I get, I get that happens in politics and I, I get it's a rough business and, and, and you're liable for that. But that's, that's usually when you're the one running for office. You know, I am a low level behind the scenes figure that they just trampled on. So I would, at the very least, I think I would say, I would want just an apology. You were wrong. And, and you use my image and you, you, you're in a very large position of power that I don't have. I, I would just want an apology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is an interesting story of politics. As you have mentioned, one became a U.S. senator. One is likely to be in President Biden's cabinet. And obviously, the person you worked for won the election and is a congresswoman now. And you're still looking for that redemption and to get a job and hopefully that is something that will take care of itself in the next couple of months 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think I, I need to do some soul searching myself, see, you know, what route I want to take, where I want to go next, see what opportunities are, are there. But yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, the, the lower level you are on these things, you know, the less, you know, advantages you're going to be able to have with it. And as a lower level staffer, I think it was like, like you mentioned, sort of the foot soldier there. I kind of caught the bullet of this and, and got trampled on. And yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. And it's also a cautionary tale. What I take away from this is how absolutely toxic and dangerous social media can be, especially Twitter. I mean, since your situation happened, obviously there's been an upheaval with Twitter, with President Trump getting banned for life and all sorts of folks getting temporary bans. And and there seems to be this crackdown going on, but yet it's almost like a war zone to be on there. I mean, you posted that photo innocently within good faith and people were saying that you should be raped in prison. I mean, there's got to be some kind of retribution for people being able to destroy a reputation with impunity. I, I, that is, I have been very wary of Twitter personally myself, not because I'm worried that my, my reputation is going to be destroyed, but more so that I just don't like the mob. I don't like seeing people ganging up on others, which seems to happen all the time. And unfortunately, you were a casualty of this. That's why I've wanted to illuminate this in this interview, just to show that there's a human being behind the the the, the target. And do you even think you want to be on social media anymore? No. <laughs> I mean, I, I w- when all that went down, I, I was like, I'm not going to do Twitter anymore. Even, I mean, it's pretty brutal and nasty before the controversy. I was like, okay, because it is part of your job as a regional field director to be on Twitter to, to, to even out the conversations regarding the race, to, to promote your candidate, promote getting out the vote, things like that. Um, myself as well as some of my colleagues were like, you know, once this election's over, we're not going on Twitter. Like, this is just a pain in the butt. Like, and you constantly have these people insulting you, just trying to bring you down. I mean, and it's weird because, you know, you grow up with, with, you know, being taught bullying is wrong, being taught, you know, being nasty to other people is wrong. And you want to be able to, you know, granted, you know, you can trade, you know, some, some punches back and forth, uh, you know, when debating politics and, 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 you know, having candidates, you know, go after each other. I mean, Harley Ruda, when he did something wrong, we'd be, we'd, we'd be there on it, but to an extent, right. Like to get really personal, to get really into people's face and, and, and to get, go to strangers, especially strangers who aren't putting themselves out there to run for office or things like that. Um, it's just like, wow, how, how can you guys do this? And, and you look at my tweet, I mean, perfect situation. I mean, just to give you the point A to point B with it, it's this project that the CGOP, you know, vetted, had to go out there. Um, I'm, you know, I, I, I've been told everything's been legally vetted. You know, there's, there's from point A to point B, everything's been approved. There should be nothing to worry about. And, you know, I, I post the picture, an innocent tweet, nothing... You know, I get sometimes people say things that are controversial or inappropriate or offensive, um, and they, they open themselves up to something. That wasn't me. That's not what I did. I had an innocent get out the vote tweet with a picture with one of these, these ballot receptacles that the GOP had. And my, in an instant, my reputation was destroyed. In an instant, the next thing you know, I'm on any Jimmy Kimmel. I'm on the Young Turks. Um, I have celebrities and political action committees bashing me. 
um, I'm being dragged to the mud from, from very vicious people all over the world. It was like stepping on a landmine because not only was our, our political opposition, like I mentioned, I worked on campaigns before, um, I had never dealt with an opposition as vicious and ruthless and, and unethical as, as the Harley Ruda team. Um, it, I mean, it was pretty mind blowing to me. So it was like stepping into a booby trap that they were able to just blow up and the rest of the world was able to jump on and blow up. Um, I think part of that is, you know, our opposition was pretty ruthless, but part of it is also just a sign of the times, uh, the political climate in today's world, you know, on a national level beyond the 40th congressional district is just so awful. And all of this is coming into play with that. You know, I think uh, uh, there's a, it's almost a viewed positively to bully people, say nasty, ruthless things about people to lie. Um, and right. it's just, I don't like it. I really don't like it on either side, Republican or Democrat. I, I really do yearn for the days of like Bush versus Clinton, where it's like, you know, you trade a little bit of barbs, you agree to disagree, but we're going to work together for the betterment of America and we're going to respect each other's opinions. And and having my view just isn't acceptable, acceptable anymore, it feels like. And I think it's really disappointing. It is a cautionary tale for sure. Well, Jordan Ty, I thank you so much for telling your story and joining me today in the Nexus. Thank you so much, Art. It was, it was great to be on here to be able to share that story. And we will be right back. That was indeed a cautionary tale about Jordan Ty. My takeaway is that it doesn't matter which party you are in or what your beliefs are. If you rub the Twitter mob the wrong way, your life may be destroyed. The term Jordan used about himself. How did we get to this point? Why in the world would you use Twitter if it meant your words or in this case, your photos could prevent you from getting future employment. Sadly, Jordan may not be employable in politics again. Everyone on his campaign was offered a job with Michelle Steele except for him, all because of a photo that originated on Twitter that did not break the law. Twitter mobs have brought down a lot of famous people, including Kathy Griffin, Roseanne Barr, and Amanda Bynes. Unlike Jordan, these folks did say some shocking things, though in some cases, these were attempts at artistry and humor. Was Kathy Griffin's fake decapitated head of President Donald Trump a good idea? Probably not. And Roseanne comparing Obama official Valerie Jarrett to an ape was racist no matter how you sliced it. Yet they were all canceled and the Twitter outrage jury ensured they would never return to the previous celebrity perch again. For those less known, Twitter could twist what someone said out of context and crucify them. You all probably remember Justine Sacco, the public relations executive who tweeted an inappropriate joke about AIDS in Africa before she boarded a plane to Cape Town in South Africa. By the time she got off the 11-hour flight, Sacco was the number one trending topic on Twitter, and the mob effectively got her fired. Her joke tweet wasn't meant to be taken literally, but what always struck me about Sacco's story was the glee people took in bringing her down. It gave people a warped sense of purpose that they could derail the life of a successful female executive who may have had a bit too much privilege for the mob's liking. I saw that same glee with Jordan. I followed his story as it happened in October and noticed nobody cared who he was as a person. 
They had a few details and ran with them. He was a Republican, a white male who happens to be handsome and photogenic to boot. For the masses, this was like a dream come true, a way to destroy someone for their perceived status in life and what they believed he represented. Forget the fact that Jordan Ty was not making a lot of money, had just served multiple service tours in the Coast Guard, and was essentially starting out in civilian life at age 29 when this controversy blew up. This was war, and Jordan had to be taken out by the outrage mob. That's why I question why anyone should be on Twitter. This sort of thing could happen on Facebook or Instagram, but it's much less frequent. There is something evil about Twitter, and I struggle to understand the benefits. Sure, it is a way to get news or information faster in certain ways. During the lightning quick moments of the Capitol Hill insurrection, I did go to Twitter for updates in real time and found some choice photos and videos. And as my mother has said, if you want to, it's a way to talk to celebrities, which definitely has an appeal at times, I suppose. But can we live without celebrity interaction and getting the, pay the rapid fire news bullets even faster than the speed of sound? I think we can. President Trump currently is living without being on Twitter and how peaceful it is, not hearing about his daily insanity at all hours of the day. We spend so much time normalizing this narcissistic psychopath that we forgot how corrosive his tweets really were. Now that he is off that pernicious platform, there's at least some friendlier discourse regarding new President Biden. I've never been a big antitrust guy, especially seeing the effects on my father's career when he was an employee at AT&T, as that trust was busted in 1984. But for Twitter, I'd make an exception. Social media has destroyed more friendships than I could count, and this idea that we all need to be connected 24-7 is stifling our collective will to live. Let's hope we decentralize and localize more in the 2020s. People like Jordan Tai, wrongfully accused of a crime he didn't commit, while people merrily hoped he would be raped in prison, will be better off. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We will see you next time and be well.